but I feel like I'm always working against an uphill battle that the mindset of schools mm. is not geared yeah. toward children's emotional growth. Welcome to the Relational Parenting Podcast. I'm Jennifer Hayes, a parent coach and 20-year child care veteran. Each week, I sit down with my own father, Rick Hayes, and discuss the complicated issues that parents face today, as well as some of the oldest questions in the book. From the latest research and the framework of my relational parenting method, we offer thought-provoking solutions to your deepest parenting struggles. Added bonuses include intergenerational wounding discussions and guest childcare experts. We will also start taking your parenting questions in episode five. So be sure to comment with your biggest questions or email me directly at Jenny at JennyB.co. Let's get started. For part three of our education series, my mama, Susan Astoy, is here to share her knowledge and experience inside of the public education arena. She has been working in the public school system as a certified school psychologist for almost 30 years, has raised three children of her own, and also runs a successful business with her husband, providing families with kid-friendly pets and therapy and service dogs for various needs. Peep the doodle faces on this episode's cover. Like our last two guests before her, she spent much of her career knowing that the education system was not quite hitting the mark, but wasn't sure how to make changes happen. She shares with us her recent journey into trauma-informed, child-centered care, and how she helped to bring that knowledge into the school districts over the last seven to eight years. She has seen the powerful results of this type of training for teachers and how it informs their classrooms and serves the kiddos who need it most. The information in this episode is invaluable to parents and caregivers everywhere for ushering in the future of child care and education. Okay, we're here. <laughs> uh, welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Relational Parenting Podcast. We are here with Mama Sue today, um, and she is here for the third episode of our educational uh, series. She is going to be talking to us about being a school psychologist inside of the school system. So um, our first episode, we had Sarah on, and she was an expert in the uh, history of the education system and uh, where the education system needs to go as far as being more child-centered. And then our second episode last week was with Caroline, who is a child psychologist outside of um, the education system, but she works with families um, navigating the education system. And this third week, we have our very own inside the system <laughs> school psychologist, yeah. and she's here to share her journey over the last 30 years of school psychology and how things have changed and evolved over time, and then also what she is doing to help train her district specifically um, on more mindful, trauma-informed, emotional-informed, child-centered uh, care. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead and introduce yourself. All right. Well, I'm Jenny's mom. <laughs> uh, I'm Sue Stoy, and also Jenny's mom. And about 33 years ago, I decided to. Um, I decided that. I needed to get a good solid job I could sink my teeth into and still raise three kids as the main caretaker. 
And while I was very interested in neuropsychology and going on and getting a master's and even further in that, I knew I needed something very practical. And so I decided to work in the school system, went back to school with a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a six-year-old. I don't recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was a full-time, very difficult thing. And um, we got through it. And uh, I Because this was graduate school. This was graduate school. This was a master's, not your your bachelor's. And I had been signed up twice to get a master's degree uh, in the previous 10 years to that and moved uh, first to North Carolina, then to Pennsylvania for um, your dad's job. And So this time I was determined. This was going to happen. New babies, not new babies. It was going to happen. (laughs) And um, and it did. And I started working. uh, I'm on my 29th year and will be hopefully retiring soon. Uh, Although I I can't imagine really doing it, even though I say I'm going to do it. Um, You like being busy. Well, I like what I do, and I I feel like, you know, I talked about sinking my teeth into it. I feel like um, the things that I started with were important things, and um, as as a school psychologist, you are by yourself. Yeah. You are typically, especially in small districts where I'm not even in one district the whole week, you are the only one of you. And how many districts do you work in? Because I don't. Two. Okay, so it's still just two. It's two. Not yeah. just and still. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're the only school psychologist for two entire districts. Correct. Yeah. And so what they use psychologists for mostly is testing mm-hmm. to see if a child needs an individualized education plan or an IEP. Mm-hmm. And so that is always my first foremost job. If they need me to counsel somebody, and they don't have someone else to cover it, then they call me. But for the most part, those are the things I'm doing. And so over the years, what I discover is, yeah, that's important. And yeah, there are kids that I'm creating behavior plans for and all that. But I feel like I'm always working against an uphill battle. That the mindset of schools mm-hmm. is not geared. Yeah toward children's emotional growth. Yeah. And it isn't that people don't care. There are a lot of people that care. It's that nobody's trained and nobody understands. And the few of us who do are, are just running around putting Band-Aids on. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I felt. Like often. trying to plug holes in a, in a yes. boat. Yeah. And trying, and, and, you know, trying to figure out what's really going on based on how we were trained. Yeah. And the truth is they don't really train you in those more intensive things. You understand about mental illness, but what do you do about it is the hard part. Yeah. And the part that I always felt was lacking. Well, and inside of, inside of a system like that, a large system, uh, it's hard. There's red tape everywhere, right? So there's, even if there are people who know what to do with a mental illness or know what to do for child specific needs because of all of the red tape and all of the process and procedures and chain of command and approval and all of the steps that it requires in order to get anything to happen, to actually happen. Yes. It takes 
weeks or months or however long that it takes. And by then it's like the child has moved on to a new classroom or, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so it, I, yeah, so that's, that's always the conundrum. And when I talk to teachers, um, or to, like talking to Caroline last week or talk to you, it's like all of these teachers, they care, they want to do more, mm-hmm. But it's like their hands are tied in a lot of situations. Well, and the truth is, even those of us in the special education department, which is where I live, yeah. um, we are our hands are tied by all kinds of protocol. Right. Um, the deadlines, the timelines, the first this, then this, then this, you mm-hmm. know, that you got to get 40 signatures from the parent exaggeration before it's all done. Yeah. And so one of the things that the world created was response to intervention. Well, response to intervention is something that we've been doing in schools now for 15, 20 years, at least in Illinois. And, but it's been focused on academics. Okay. Um, Instead of doing what you do in the classroom and trying your best with a student, maybe they get something like an intervention. Um, We eventually say they're not making the progress. We need to refer them for an individual education plan. Yeah. And then I test, right? Well, through response to intervention, we have in place different types of reading, math, writing interventions, and we measure that progress with little benchmark uh, tests. Then if they're not making a certain amount of progress over time based on all of that extra, then it comes to me and I do an assessment. Of course, there are a lot of other pieces in there that don't have to do with academics. But what we haven't had in place the way we need to in schools, and it's because of time and because of money and because of personnel limitations, we haven't had the social-emotional side of the triangle truly explored, not in the schools I'm in. And so especially since COVID, Mm -hmm. people have finally become aware of the needs and we're finally getting some money funneled into that. Where is that? So how, how, how are you now getting money funneled into that? Like federal government has, has, has given funds. Of course they have to be used for those specific things. Um, but I know because I'm able to get people in charge (laughs) to say yes to things that cost money that they didn't used to be able to. So even if nobody had talked to me and told me about those funds, I know because now people can say yes. And I know that so it's things, taken seriously because they're saying yes. Okay. So there were things that you would ask for in the past um, to be done or an intervention to be made that you would, the, you know, the red tape or the, fi- you know, the finances of the school, there's no money to invest in that kind of training, et cetera. And now, now you're getting yeses and you're getting to go do these trainings and, so, yes, and yeah. and I don't want to say we did, we couldn't go to trainings or we couldn't you know do things. Well, no, um, but specifically the social emotional. Yes, ones. and and especially for teachers. Yeah, I could go to trainings, right? But again, then I'm the person running around trying to put a band aid on everybody. Right. So let me go back about seven years because that was a key change for me. Okay. This changed my complete mindset, my complete career. People had been asking me 
for the 20 years before that. What do you think is going on? Why are these kids getting worse? Why are they having more issues? Why are all the problems that we saw exacerbated and more mm -hmm. difficult? And I had some ideas, and, and some of those were, were related to the chemicals that we keep passing down to our children our since food. the Industrial Revolution, yep. to the food and the water and the air and the things we touch. <laughs> yeah. um, that's not helping. Yeah. But those were the things I was trying to figure out. What is happening in these kids' little bodies that makes them dysregulated, which wasn't yeah. even a word we used then. Yeah. And seven or eight years ago, I went to a training, and... It was on trauma. Do you remember what year it was? Was it? I want to say around 15 or 16. Okay. And uh, it was at least three or four years before COVID hit. How, why do we measure everything by that? But in my Well, it's a benchmark. We used yeah. to measure everything by 9-11. Yeah, that's true. So, so it, was a, it was a trauma-informed training. Training. Okay. Yes. And I went with a social worker that I work with, uh, ended up working with her a long time. And we went together and I really didn't have big hopes for this training, you know, but it was not something I'd heard of, sadly. Like trauma informed was not something. Yeah, traumatology was not a word I knew. I didn't know that was a word. It traumatology. Is, it is, yeah, the study it of makes, trauma. Yeah, it makes yes. sense. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and uh, Dr. Bruce Perry coined that phrase in my mind, but you know, he's, he's obviously studying that. Uh, for years and years and years and is a great resource. And so um, I went to this training and they started off uh, with a couple of questions and then went straight into the brain science mm -hmm. of trauma and how those little pathways are built in Neurology. all of us. Mm -hmm. Yes. Of course, here you have a wished for neuropsychologist person sitting there listening and I'm, and I'm getting, my body language must have been intense yeah. because I'm, I'm just sitting there like that answers, that answers that question. Oh my, oh my gosh, that kid. And I'm sitting next to Laura and Laura's like, what is going on with you? <laughs> and I'm like, this is the answer. Yeah. This is what I've waited to understand. Hmm. It was. It was emotional. Don't get emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't bring the tissues over. But it was. It was very, um, I mean, I spent the day heightened, yeah. you know, and just now I can't look at you because you, yeah. And so look away. all day long as she spoke, <clears throat> you know, as, as this person presented, I'm just, re I'm just going through kid after kid after kid. I'm like, that explains that one that, oh, what could we have done? Yeah. And so this is the next question, of course, that people like me who do what I do are asking themselves, then what can we do? Yeah. And this particular training touched on that a little, but not very much. So I left there that day. Here's the problem. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was a beginning. It was yeah. a beginning spot. Aware, awareness is the first step. Yeah. <laughs> and so very shortly after that, like by that was maybe spring by the next fall, I had contacted um, the co-op I work for that basically rents me to these districts. Yeah. And you can always give them input into what trainings you want. And I'm like, well, I know what I want. And we started off, there were um, training your team mm -hmm. in trauma. And so I put a team together in the district I'm in the most, and it included myself and a counselor um, two special ed teachers and two teachers. 
and I was excited that I had these people interested. And we went to these trainings on how to train your school because it was clear to me that if my mindset was changing, I needed people to understand, I needed these, these educators to understand how this was impacting their lives every day and the kids in their classrooms. Right. And so we did the training that year. Everything's <clears throat> slow in education. The next year, we trained our teachers. And this is exciting to me. You know, when, you're, when you work in education, you have to get evaluated um, once you're at my level every two years. And so after we did the trauma trainings um, and the person that evaluates me came and observed one of those, um, I mean, we had them going through the ACEs, you know, we had them understanding self-care. What under- was, what's ACEs? Oh, ACEs is... We don't know what that is. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, oh gosh, I haven't talked about ACEs for a while. So that was a study done many years ago. I believe it was the 90s. And this was basically done by an insurance company, and they wanted this information for medical predictive purposes. Yeah. And so they took a a very non-inclusive group of people. It was basically middle class and basically white, um, which is one of the problems with the ACE. You know, we we look at it a lot, but we need more tests. It's actually one of the problems with a lot of of earlier studies um, was lack of diversity and lack of women. Well, and this, being included this, in those this, studies, this had women, but it didn't have, it had people who could afford health insurance. Yeah. And it had people, um, basically from the middle class and a little above, I suppose. And they, they asked, uh, several questions on what happened to you. Yeah. And the study showed that if you had, you know, two or more answers that were, yes, maybe it was my parent. One of my parents died. One of my parents was a drug addict. One of my parents uh, suffered from alcoholism. There was a divorce in the family. So it was, it was questions about their childhood? Their childhood trauma okay. up until age 18. Okay. And so then, it, and then there were other questions um, about, about their lives, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, et cetera, yeah. and so on. And if you fit into one of these 10 or 12 areas, I can't remember exactly how many, you know, then... You obviously there are other traumas, which is another argument about the ACE, but they have it had a lot of predictive value for your health later in life. Yeah, if you had if you had five or more, um, you would die twenty years younger on average. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, self inflicted death is well, part of that and carrying all that trauma the trauma yes trauma lives in your body it lives in your muscles and and fascia and bones and then it can if it's continues to be unresolved for years and years and years um it turns into disease yes yeah yes and it's <sighs> trauma training involves so many pieces yeah um and self-care is one of them. And we wanted teachers to understand trauma is, is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. So you can, and sometimes it's just witnessing Mm -hmm. a traumatic event. Sometimes it's not something that's that big a deal, but maybe it happens over and over and over again and it becomes a big deal Mm -hmm. and nobody even notices that. That's how divorces happen. Yes. It's prime example. 
tiny things, tiny things mm-hmm. over and over and over again for many, 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 many years unresolved turns into sometimes you all, you've been neglecting me in tiny ways for 20 years or you've been, mm-hmm. you know, and then finally something topples that over yep. and, and, and for children, I mean, divorce can be, it's never smooth sailing yeah. because they're grieving for their family. Yeah. And even the people who want divorce are grieving for their family that well, they de- thought they would have. Well, and depending know. on, well, yeah. So, I mean, people, the, the people, the parties who are splitting obviously are grieving for the future that won't be there mm-hmm. or the vision of the family that they wanted and didn't get. But children, especially depending on their developmental level, mm-hmm. um, are struggling to even understand what divorce is or why mommy and daddy or daddy and daddy or mommy and mommy or whatever mm-hmm. combination of, of parental names um, are no longer, you know, living in the same house. Like it, literally all the change is, can be traumatic. Yes. Just, just huge change alone can be traumatic for children and if they are at an age where they don't understand it yet mm-hmm. um, there's an age of ignorance and then there's an age of like some of that in between age where it's like wait what's happening and how does this world Which work? I think can be one of the <clears throat> most difficult yeah. ages I mean they've even shown that adult children who are out of the house mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a trauma for them yep. um, because it's their whole view of, of their life and identity and yes. connection yes. yeah so it's one of them and some some kids might have handled that smoothly, and some kids may have struggled and struggled with that, yeah. um, depending on the whole situation. Uh, so all these things. I buried it. <laughs> I was. Did you did you bury anything really? <laughs> I I I know that it maybe it never seemed like I buried it, but I from sixteen to eighteen I buried it. I could see that. And I got cancer somewhere there. <laughs> I'm oh, that's mean. <laughs> that <was> evil. <laughs> I I remember. But I remember. I so you guys were you were I was 16 when you guys started the divorce process. It took a couple of years, and I remember. But I remember being ready for it and betting on it. Mm-hmm. And I I had a bet with we're very cavalier. Yes. And I had a, and that was, that was, and is to this day, not really anymore, um, but up until a couple of years ago was a coping skill of mine it was just to be like, whatever, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, but I had bet Josh, I had a bet going with Josh that you would divorce before I graduated high school. And he thought that they would wait till Nathan, that you guys would wait till Nathan graduated high school. But nobody questioned. But nobody questioned that a divorce was happening. Except maybe Nathan. Yeah, I think he was caught off guard. Um, I know he was caught off guard. But anyway, I, one of my coping skills as a teenager was to pretend I didn't care and to, to dissociate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an invisible coping mechanism Um, And I actually just did a talk last night uh, explaining there was a a meta-analysis of 53 studies done over the course of 20 years um, from 20, maybe it was the early 90s to just before 2020 
um, and the meta-analysis was actually just done last year. So they took these 53 studies, and it, and it basically showed that, that parental influence, parental emotional regulation or dysregulation, parental behaviors affect children, like, across the board, no matter what there is an effect. Mm-hmm. But what they found was that the effects they could pinpoint um, – externally were almost non-existent. The only ones they could pinpoint were internal markers of shame, guilt, Mm. self-worth, lack of self-worth, lack of confidence, um, dissociation, those internal emotional things that kids just brew and sit in for years and years and years um, (laughs) because they never learned healthy coping skills when they were little. They never learned how to move through an emotion, how to feel an emotion, and and then how to talk about it or move, um, how to get it out. Um, and even those little tiny, those, even something that seems so tiny and insignificant as their feelings being invalidated when they're three Mm -hmm. will, will, um, then become an external, uh, coping mechanism when they're an adult. And so like, that's, part of what I'm doing with relational parenting mm-hmm. is teaching parents as early as possible how to have healthy coping, healthy emotional regulation skills, um, which translate into healthy relationship skills with their children um, and with themselves so that they aren't causing this invisible trauma um, for their children to deal with once they're grown and out of the house mm-hmm. and on their own. And so... <clears throat> Well, and just just teaching those skills. I don't know what I was saying. Well, but saying in, just teaching those skills when oh, they're. Hold on, I remember where I was. Okay. Sorry. So, so this meta analysis was basically showing that 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 um, a lot of a lot of coping skills and um, traumas and maybe even micro traumas that children are experiencing, um, they're either showing up in school as you know, struggling or struggling with their friends, Mm -hmm. but even more so than like showing up in their behaviors at home, it's showing, it's not even showing up until they're adults, which is like the dangerous part of this is that, oh, well, my kid is fine. Oh, well, my kid doesn't care about that. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, my kid doesn't, my kid doesn't misbehave. So they must be fine. Right. And that's like, that's the dangerous part of this. And especially for girls. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And what I was going to add to that was when you teach those skills, you know, when they're little, when you recognize those feelings and you teach those skills, they start to use them right away. It's not like they wait till they're grown up and then they remember them. They love them. They use them. They love them. They're like, I feel so much better. Mm -hmm. I've had, I've had two, a two-year-old that I nannied for. I have had a two-year-old come to me. And more than one, when after I've taught them just like how to take a deep breath and let's take deep breaths together mm-hmm. or whatever, when it's like I gave them the green cup instead of the blue cup and they have a full blown meltdown and every part of my body just wants to be like, it's not that big of a deal. Right. Like you just, you just, your whole body reacts to so what feels. Two, you want choices. Right. So when you're two, you have no control of your life and you have no idea what's going on. And all you wanted that day was a blue cup. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's all your brain can process. And so as the adult teaching her, teaching her, um, you know, 
first validating, oh, that's so frustrating. I didn't know you wanted the blue cup. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's screaming and she's not really hearing me. And so I just sit with her and hold her hand and let her scream it out. And I just tell her, get it out, girlfriend, get it out. Mm -hmm. And she gets it out. And then I go, and with a two-year-old, you don't even have to like tell them what to do. You just do it and they'll start copying you. They'll mirror it. Mm-hmm. Especially things that are oh, your body. This feels really frustrating to me. And you just talk about your own experience of them screaming. Like, you don't say, you're screaming, so it's upsetting me. But you just sit mm-hmm. in your feelings and say, oh, this is so frustrating. Or or I'm so mad right now. And I'm maybe holding her hand and I just start deep breathing. And that baby... A teeny tiny little baby will start doing it with you. Mm-hmm. And then the next time they were, she was upset, I didn't teach it to her. I didn't verbalize it to her. I just did it in the moment. And the next time she was upset about something, she, she started screaming and crying. And then I, I came in the room to, ch- to see what was wrong. And she looked up at me and she went, Oh, and she was taking like these really intense and her whole body was shaking and she was upset mm-hmm. and she was clenching her fists. But I just remember, and she just looked up at me and she was just like taking these deep breaths. And when she was ready, I just waited. Mm-hmm. And when she was ready, she was just like, my teddy bear isn't in my crib for nap time and I can't find him, you know? And she, and she told me what was wrong. And I was like, do you want me to help you find your teddy bear? And she goes, yeah. And we went that and found the teddy bear. And it was like, it was like, what awesome. just happened? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and you know, you have to let them calm and the breathing is what does it. I mean, that's, we regulate the babies. Yeah. You know, our bodies, when they're itty bitty, mm-hmm. that regulates them. We regulate them and a then, lot for most of their life until they move out. But in different ways, though. Yes, yes. And then when they're that age, you can start just having them mere breathe with you. Mm-hmm. And in schools, we teach it now. <laughs> we teach it now. So you want me to go back to where I was? Yeah. So we were, let's see, we were talking about trauma-informed care and you training. And training the teachers. Yes. So what, what I discovered in, in the future <clears throat> trainings was that, of course, regulation comes through Things like yoga and mindfulness and the Go Noodle and YouTube, you know, mm-hmm. getting up and moving by your desk. And you made a video for me of yoga for children. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. And I don't know how many teachers <laughs> downloaded that. And so the second time. Should have made you pay for it. <laughs> should have sold it to you. <laughs> so the second time that year that I was observed, I had found a way to get to get us to purchase yoga mats. Mm-hmm. And this was before COVID. And That's way to expensive. store them. Yeah, um, I there guess were you can get them cheap at in least bulk. thirty of them. So for a school, that's a lot of money. And I had all of my grade school teachers, pre-K through fifth grade, at a yoga training for forty-five minutes, and that was that was my second observation <laughs> that year. <laughs> now this is from a person who, fourteen years before that, I was practicing meditation, mindfulness. Yeah. And I have always walked, and I do a lot of that when I walk because it regulates me. Yeah. And I would not have admitted that to anyone where I work. I didn't know. Or well, no, because and you and I didn't know about it till 
I was struggling with my own mental health stuff in my 20s. That's and when you I told you. Shared, you sent me like a whole book of meditation and mm-hmm. all these different like spiritual practices and just like breathing and being quiet and mm-hmm. setting up a little sacred space where you can just go like a little safe space and like just be with yourself. And I didn't know any of that, like when I was growing up, that that was. And then 14 years later, I find myself teaching people yeah. to do it when all I have done was figure out my own self. Where did you learn it? I learned it by um, listening to um, audio tapes. I learned it by um, CDs that audio had different. tapes. Yes. Audio, audio tapes. tapes. <laughs> In my car with a cassette. Yes. At least it's not, it wasn't an eight track. That was before my time, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. So anyway, that... Um, before you had a car. Before I had a car, <laughs> definitely. So the eight tracks were definitely okay. around before, when you were a kid. Be- before I had music in my room, mm-hmm. right? I had a record player. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a process, and now I can look back and I can see how my interest in that probably grew out of something I, I felt that needed to happen. Well, and drew, maybe drew, even drew you to school psychology uh, to yeah, learn about could be, kids. and yeah. could be. But then all of a sudden I find myself, first of all, I don't want to train people. Yeah, you're not a get up in front of people that kind is, of person. That was not my goal. <laughs> um, I, you know, I didn't want to speak in, in front of others and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I was fine at a meeting. Yeah. But somehow if you stood up at a podium and started to talk in front of 30 people, that was different. It is different. Or 50 people or whatever it is. Yeah. And so, so. Well, I, now you're on a podcast. And ne- Look yeah. at you. So, yeah. <laughs> How did you do that? Yeah. No, it's, I'm getting used to it. So. You know, that's that's where we went with it. We went with all the, this is what you can do to help kids with trauma. And then we came up on, I found a, a program that was someone else doing a lot of the training. And then I added to that with, um, actually bribed my principal to do this. Can you say that? <laughs> I just did. <laughs> No, I think she would have done it anyway. Anyone but wonders where I, I get my sass from? <laughs> I added a little to it. Um, and and she wanted the best for her teachers anyway. And so we... What, wait, hold on. What did you bribe her with? Because I know it wasn't a real bribe. It was a U of I thing. It was it was a stained glass U of I that came in a in a bar that we had purchased. So Okay, so you buttered her up. Sure. Yeah, you got her, you got her a really nice gift. I said... The end and of the asked, year, if we can start these trainings, this is Look yours. how pretty this is. I did. <laughs> I, we, we may or may not have been um, drinking on the porch when that happened. I don't know. But, yeah. Is that, can I, are we going to have to cut all of that? No, I don't think so. Is she still We weren't principal? drinking at school. We would never do that. No. Yeah, we're talking about gift giving and drinking. It was it was all in fun after hours. Yeah, it was all in fun, and and educators are allowed to have drinks. No, I know, but the word bribe. Oh no, come is. on! It was, it was not a bribe. It it was um, it was a gift I gave her because she listened to me, and it was uh, a thank you. It was a thank you. <laughs> I, I wouldn't worry about this. Okay. Um, no money changed hands. Bribes don't have to be money. <laughs> Quit it. Oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna edit all of that, but I'm gonna piece together the good parts. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's gonna be great. 
So, okay. So I had found this program and it, it sort of filled and it came to me accidentally and it just, it was trauma based and it was about relationship in school, about a school family hmm. instead of the factory mm-hmm. concept of schools. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a little story. Ooh, we love stories. A little story. When I was six, I was in first grade, and um, I had a teacher that um, I think in my mind was okay. You know, I didn't have a lot to compare it to. Yeah. And there was a little boy who sat in front of me, and he did not smell good. He clearly came from a home where there was neglect. Mm. And one day he spilled his milk. I saw it happen. It was a complete accident. Yeah. And this teacher not only yelled and screamed at him, she was making him clean up the milk, which is okay. Yeah. Natural consequence. Yes. A a great natural (laughs) consequence. But But also an accident doesn't need a consequence anyway. No. Just keep going. (laughs) He started to clean it up and he bent over. And while he cleaned it up, she swung her arm and paddled him the entire time. Jesus. This was back up until I was in about eighth grade. You could hit kids in school. Yeah. And I have never forgotten that. Not only did she abuse him verbally and physically, she shamed him. In front of everyone. In front of everyone. And it traumatized me enough yeah. that I have never forgotten it. And I can't really tell you another memory that's clear about first From grade. Being six years old. Yeah. Not in, not in that classroom. I mean, there's a little bit of Dick and Jane that runs through my head, but there's no <laughs> clear memory. Yeah. Just that. Yeah. And also that I never liked her after that. Yeah. I knew that. And in my home, we did not treat people that way. Yeah. And that I knew as well. I have no idea if I told anyone about it. I don't know any of those things. All I know is that created a trauma in me just watching it. Yeah. Well, it's just like, it's just like reading or watch like the George Floyd video or whatever. Like you, it is, it is well proven that trauma, a secondary trauma occurs mm. by witnessing yes. horrible things, whether it happened to you or not. It's why I can't watch certain movies because it will stay with me. I, we used to tease you about that and, um, I will publicly apologize <laughs> for it <laughs> because about four or five years ago, I started to notice myself. I quit watching super violent, um, you know, super horror, like horror movies, mm-hmm. like scary movies always kind of stuck with me, but I also kind of like, I liked curling up with a boyfriend or whatever and watching mm-hmm. them, you know, and like being scared, right. um, or going to haunted houses. And I, I won't do it anymore because it, I have nightmares. I have like, I've learned what my body, you know, I'm very in tune with my mm-hmm. body and my emotions now. And the last four or five years I have stopped letting those things into my life. Like mm-hmm. I do not feed those things to my brain anymore because it's, uh, it's literally unnecessary. I'm glad trauma. to hear it. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I forgot what I was going to say, but it's, it's, um, oh, and once I had kids. Yeah. I could handle even less. Yeah. Because every parent's biggest fear is the natural consequence of your kid steps in front of a bus. Yeah. You know, those are scary, scary thoughts. And if you watch a movie about something horrible that happens to a child, yeah. I mean, I can't even read those books anymore, you know. Yeah. So there are things we know not to do to our brains, mm-hmm. and we learn it as we get older. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of our kids are exposed to this all the time, mm-hmm. sooner and younger, yep. and it's having an impact. Yep. Back to con- back back to what I was training my teachers in. <clears throat> um. I keep losing my train of thought with that. So okay, that's what we do. We went through it. We're highly supportive of ADHD tangents on this podcast. And we got about two thirds of the way through it. And, um, these trainings and COVID happened. Mm. Here's what happened after COVID. Everything changed. We could not all be in the same room together. (coughs) All these physical movement things and all were out. We changed hands. There were different people in charge of our buildings. We, some of our buildings. Like different administrators? Different administrators. We lost a lot of our people. Yep. Um, There was a lot of turnover for all kinds of reasons. Um, COVID was very hard on kids, but also on other people in education. It put a strain. And everybody thought that the first year after the original March date was tough, but honestly, the year after that was even harder. Yeah. And I think it was just the culmination. 21. Yeah. Yeah. 21. Because we were 22 school year. Still. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. And you were in some kind of a limbo area yep. where you didn't know what to do and you still had to do these things. And there was yep. all this testing and masks and all this stuff and, and fear. And polarization on yes. both sides, and parents who are yes, there were all. I don't want to put my kid in a mask, and I only want my kid in a mask, and yeah, right. And so it was, it was just a lot of stress, and that became the focus. Mm-hmm. Not, and it wasn't that people didn't continue to do some of the things they had learned, and it wasn't that their mindset changed. It was just that they were busy trying to just survive. Yeah. Survival mode. And that's kind of what the kids and, you know, kids came back to us in a whole different mindset themselves. Some of them had been in bad situations. Older kids had learned that they can just do work online and not really do work. And so why should they come to school? I'll just keep doing work online. Well, there's also kids who learned that they they learned better online and by themselves. There are. We didn't see a lot of those. I've (laughs) seen those. I've seen, I've seen kids who benefited and, and quit going to school and just did on now do online school. Like there's, there's online public schools because they can, they can whip through their stuff in three hours and have the rest of the day to be a kid. And in my district, what we saw was kids who might've wanted to do that came back anyway. And cause they wanted to be at school. Yeah. There's a social aspect to it, but the kids who were staying home, at least any of the ones I was aware of, were the ones not doing the work anyway, or kids who really needed guidance, you know, with their executive brain to do the work. Well, so they weren't getting what they needed they at school. Well, no, they weren't getting what they needed online, but they also found that as a reason 
not to come back to a place where things are just hard for them anyway. Because the kids I'm working with, school's hard. Well, but that's what I mean is like a kid who who was struggling in school before the pandemic, mm-hmm. who has then now doesn't have to struggle in front of an audience and is at home mm-hmm. struggling. Um, and maybe their gift isn't school academics. Their right. gift might be building stuff or, you know, whatever um, it could be. And the Caroline in our last episode shared the analogy of if you try to make a fish climb a tree, they're going to fail every time. They're going to fail right. your test, right? And so measuring a child. So anyway, a ch- I can see a child who struggles at school, feels embarrassed or ashamed all the time. Absolutely. And you, not every student can have a one-on-one teacher 24 hours a day, um, which is what some kids need. I can see them being like, that doesn't, that system does not work for me. Why would I want to go back to that? Mm-hmm. Now we, we do offer in one of my schools, basically an online version in school where you're not in classrooms and you have someone to help guide you. We do have that sort of in the middle yeah. kind of thing that we offer, and that has worked well for certain kids. Yeah. Um, is that like a computer, like a separate computer lab? It is. Or? Well, it's on computer. I mean, it's but it's it is not a lab. It's just a room designed for that. So is is it considered a special education room? No, not at all. Okay. And then do because they do they always, transition and like do lunch and and breaks? It's basically and stuff? a credit recovery program, and they can participate. It, it's changed over the years. For a while, they weren't participating in other things. Now, I think other than lunch, now they are. It's it's been different every year, and it's not something I'm directly involved in. So I don't want to say, oh, it's been this or that all the time mm-hmm. because I don't really know. But I do mm-hmm. know it has seen <clears throat> success. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, kids who we know they have the skill, but they are not able, um, they don't necessarily need a special ed classroom at all because they they have the skill differently, but they are not able to keep, they don't have the executive skills to perform what they know. Yeah. And so those kids are doing better in that kind of a setting. Yeah. So I thought that was a pretty uh, creative way to help kids get through the high school piece. And again, this is a small town, so you don't have five avenues. That I'm impressed that there was that one. I'm like that. Well, and that's we also great. have we'll you know LTech or you know we'll bus you over to Lincoln, and you can do you can learn to be a chef, or you can learn to be a nurse's aide, or you can learn to do mechanics or computer tech. You know half a day, but of course you have to have your basic credits to do that. Yeah. And so there have always been those options, but we don't have, it's pretty much you're on track to go to college or you're not. Yep. Is pretty much what it is. So public schools have their limitations. Yep. And what my goal has been has, can I help this kid in the last seven years? Mm -hmm. Can I help this child learn to regulate themselves? Can I help these teachers learn to teach the kids after they have regulated themselves Mm -hmm. to then regulate the children and to use encouragement and natural consequences. And if they know the skill and they're connected and have a relationship with you, some logical consequences to motivate, Yeah, but not just say you did this. Now this happens. Yeah. 
you know, it's, it, there's just so many techniques and the more kids need choices, you know, the, the kids who are so out of, who don't have any control in their lives, like the two year old, mm-hmm. but they might be 14 mm-hmm. or they might be eight and emotionally they're still stuck yep. because they never were taught how to regulate their emotions. Yeah. And so, or they come from a home where there's abuse or there's all kinds, all kinds of, of situations. Abuse, yes. Where it's either, you know, I'm going to take you out or I'm not even going to notice you. Yeah. Those opposites. Mm-hmm. And we wonder why they're angry. Yeah. Um, and can't focus in mm-hmm. class or there's kids who aren't getting meals at home mm-hmm. and their only meal is school lunch or like there are kids that are out there like stressing. And even through all of this and not finishing up and not being able to implement like we wanted, I still have teachers, even the ones that had the training, they want to do it again. Yeah. They're trying to, you know, other teachers are interested because they've heard about it. Uh, the new ones. And cause it's working when they do well, it, it's working. And I walk into a classroom in my grade school of a teacher who ran with it and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It is a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. And I don't even think they realize how mm. wonderful they are. And like there was a little boy in one of those classrooms. I'm trying not to, you know, put anybody on the spot. And he came in, you know, with counseling minutes and, um, couldn't regulate his emotions very well. And he learned to go to the calming place and to hold a little doll that had the emotion that he often felt. Yeah. And that became his little doll that he held. And he learned when he needed to, to go there and do it and breathe and calm himself down. And he no longer has an IEP. And this just started in the fall. What were his, so what were his, uh, how did he show emotional dysregulation in the classroom? And then was there anything else besides him going by himself to a a calming corner? Because there's also, Mm -hmm. I, I have been a fan of like the calm corner or like the safe place um, versus like a timeout or like a, like a rejective separation. Well, there were lots of supports for that. Um, And, And one of them was that the counselor taught him the skills Right. The teacher reinforced the breathing and the skills. So he knew when he was calm what to do. Yeah. And how to go through the steps. And then if like especially at the beginning of the year, he would get very dysregulated, maybe very angry, very fast. Um what did that look like? Mm, specifically. I would call it a mild meltdown. Was he screaming? Was he throwing things? Was he attacking other kids? He did not get aggressive to other kids. He was angry with himself. I think that at times he would do little things to hurt himself, but mostly he was crying and yelling. In the classroom? In the classroom. But like at the teacher? I just want to paint a clear picture. Depended on the situation because it wasn't always one thing. Okay. Um, but he, you know, he also had a teacher who could see his body language. See, you hit a very expressive face and that's helpful. So, yes. And so you could see, could see it coming. <laughs> he would start to get, his body would get more dysregulated. Yeah. So there would be more movement. Um, you might get a little pound on the <clears> desk <throat> or something like that. And then she would attempt that step in. Yeah. 
while he was in his emotional brain yeah, and to do the calming with him and remind him of what he could do with the breathing and, and preempt for him. So she was teaching him in the moment that he could go ahead and calm himself and helping him do that. And it didn't take long. Yeah. And look, this cracks me up. So another little girl joined the class. I think it was after Christmas or just before Christmas. And he was, um, Basically letting the adults that he deals with know that he felt like she could use the calming corner. <laughs> and he was I love right. it when other kids do that. They learn a, mm-hmm. a skill and then they they can identify it in other kids. Yes. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, and, and some of my teachers look at me funny, you know, like I'm crazy, but um, I'm, you know, I'm the only one that does it. So I got to say it. I can't rely on someone else to say it. And I'll be like, if you get a kid, a new kid in your classroom, and that child is dysregulated, don't worry about getting them to do work. Expect it. Promote it. Mm -hmm. Encourage it. Focus on your relationship and Mm -hmm. focus on their relationship with their peers and have the peers do some of those things that they know how to do with each other and, yes. and problem solving with each other, conflict resolution. Yes. Do that in your classroom with him or her first yep. because the rest of this isn't going to mean anything to him or her. Well, and the work will never happen if all you do is focus on the work. It'll be a constant struggle. You're going to set them off. Yep. There's going to be a meltdown and nothing will get done. You have to build a relationship with somebody before you're going to go anywhere. And so relational parenting, relational schooling, <laughs> right? <laughs> we are, as always, kind of on the same path. Yeah, I remember. I remember. So I was going through my yoga teacher training, my first one, uh, back when you, or maybe I was in my second one. I had maybe started my second one. Yeah, because I had graduated my first one, and then I, I had started my my 500-hour. Um, so I was, a, I was a certified yoga teacher um, at this point in time, and you had reached out to me and mm-hmm. asked me. You had just started getting into these mindfulness trainings in mm-hmm. the schools, and I was like, that's so cool because I've, I'm, like, getting trained in all of this stuff now, and I've, I was working with um, – I was working at that time in the youth uh, at-risk youth juvenile facility. Yes, um, and I was teach and I was working with uh, boys ages fourteen to twenty-one who had been put in uh, juvenile lockdown for crimes committed. And I mean these these boy, I got I got myself an education um, from these boys because I grew up in small white middle America cornfields. Mm -hmm. Uh, and these, these boys towered over me and they were, they were, they had grown up in extremely traumatic environments and Mm. were all, every single one of them was, had a a gang affiliation and et cetera, et cetera. And they were all bigger than me. Um, and I went in there as humble as possible, knowing that I didn't know jack shit about their lives right. and what they'd been through. Like I couldn't even imagine it on my worst day. Um, 
And I went in there and I forged relationships with these kids and I listened to their stories. Um, and I was terrified, but I was also, I was also pretty confident. Like I was, I was humble, but I was confident in myself Mm -hmm. and I was, I was maybe determined was, is a more accurate word. (laughs) Not confident. You come by that now. Determined (laughs) and, and humble and, um, but I've all, I'm also, I'm also a person who, who doesn't put up with bullshit. Um, and well, and with a group like that, they need to know that early on. Well, and so I learned real quick, like I, I had kind of a great personality for that work, Mm -hmm. um, because I'm extremely empathetic and understanding of almost any situation, um, and any motivation behind doing something, doing whatever action it is. Uh, but I'm also like, cut the crap. Mm-hmm. And that those two sides of that coin, you know, just happened to be what kids in that situation need in a lot of ways. But anyway, I went in there and I forged these relationships and I start, I asked the administrator if I could start, um, holding Saturday meditations. I always worked Saturdays. Oh, I worked cool. a 14 hour shift on Saturdays. Um, And so every night after dinner, I think it was like six o'clock or whatever, the kids, the boys who wanted to come do meditation with me, uh, we would meet in one of the the sitting rooms on, on their, uh, block and I would walk them through a 10 or 15 minute meditation. And then if any of them, you know, a few times one of them would stay behind and like talk to me about what like happened in their, in their Mm -hmm. meditation with me. And we'd process, um, together, but I was, so I was going through my, I had graduated my first yoga teacher training. I was in my second and you reached out to me and you were doing these mindfulness things in the schools and you had started being like the trainer of everyone for these mindfulness practices and trauma informed training and all of that. And you asked me if I would put together like a 15 minute yoga movement thing for kids in the classroom that they could do like right next to their desk. Mm -hmm. So I had, I had to put something together where we weren't like on a yoga mat and doing all kinds of fancy shit. It had to be, we got them yoga mats later, but they didn't have them yet. We can stand up and take a break right next to our desk and move our bodies and then sit back down and, and refocus. Right. Um, and so I created a sequence and videotaped it for you and I was just like I felt you know so crazy and silly doing it but you wouldn't believe how many people <clears throat> showed that to like in trainings like not just that school yeah mm-hmm. so so did that and then and that was the first time I was like oh we're like we're kind of learning the same things right now and then over the last seven or eight years every time you come to visit and we're talking about the stuff that you're doing in schools, it's always kind of aligned with what I'm learning and doing in my life. So I went on to, to be a social worker. Me away. Really? (laughs) Yeah. The parallel growth. Um, Mm -hmm. and there, and I, I believe in like, there's a collective consciousness and Mm -hmm. especially with the internet and social media information spreads and like, there's, you know, things go viral, there's trends. And, and, and that just means that a lot of people are becoming aware of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so 
I went on, so then I went on to, I was a social worker for a few years, uh, working with adults with disabilities and then, and, you know, used my psychology and all of that, um, and conversations with you. And then, and I, you know, wrote behavior plans and implemented, it wasn't called an IEP because I wasn't working in a school, but, um, I would place adults with disabilities in, uh, certified homes in the community to take care of them that were, that had been trained on how to care for someone with Mm -hmm. that specific disability. And I was the trainer, so I would train new host home providers <laughs> um, that were the host homes in the community. Um, and I would, uh, I also recruited host home providers. I would train them, and then I would also match a client to a home that was set up for their likes and their preferences. And that's important. And their, yeah. And so I was, I was the matchmaker, but I also then had to do all these evaluations of the client up front so that we could train the home provider mm-hmm. on all of their needs. And I would write behavior plans and I would write, uh, like daily, uh, oh gosh, the technical terms are slipping my mind. But anyway, I was basically doing a lot of the same things that I had heard you talk about doing mm-hmm. as I was growing up and what a school psychologist does and evaluations and assessments. Uh, and I was, I was, basically doing that for adults with disabilities and specific needs and Mm -hmm. all of the things. Um, and then I, you know, left that profession to go back to being a professional nanny and I started reading new parenting books and more, you know, reabsorbing new studies and information. And then you and I started talking about what you're doing in the schools again. And, And it was like, every time you came to visit every year, we would, we would like talk in depth about, what we were doing in our lives. And it was like, we were, we were just growing alongside each other, like mm-hmm. kind of learning the very similar things, um, at the same time Ways to regulate our bodies and help others do yeah. it. Right. Well, and the importance of the importance of the emotional and mental wellness, especially early on, like, and, and I took that into, um, parenting and you took it into teaching from the school's perspective, mm-hmm. teaching it to teachers and counselors and administrators, because oh, they're exactly. also primary caregivers. They yes. become primary caregivers. They are with those children mm-hmm. seven, eight hours a day, depending on classroom well, rotation. And that is and, something I have tried to really instill in them, mm-hmm. that if you teach this child these skills, these skills of regulation mm-hmm. and and conflict resolution, et cetera, they're not just going to quit doing it. Right. They're going to take that with them for the rest the of the rest lives. of their lives. Yes. And if they're a trauma child, a child that's experienced a lot of trauma, all they really have to have in their life is one key person each year. Yep. It doesn't have to be the same person. Yeah. But if they don't have that one person to help them with all of these one issues, safe person, very one safe, safe yes. reliable person that they have connected with emotionally mm-hmm. that they have a true relationship with um, it can make all the difference and that is something that I didn't say early on because I, I hadn't even been trained yet myself so I didn't really get that yeah but mm-hmm. as as I've done the first training and then we had COVID I now this year am training my other district 
Yeah. Because I had a goal. If I'm retiring, mm-hmm. I need to get this done. And we are we have done five of six trainings, which is a lot of time for a school to devote because yeah. you don't get that much. You know, there aren't that many days where the teachers don't have kids where they can do that training. And so I totally appreciate that. And on one of those days, we kicked it off with not only my training, but we had a person come in and do mindfulness mm. as well, who does it all the time and to teach how to do it with students yeah. better. And I learned from my first training that I have to start with a lot of you people are parents. Mm-hmm. And I want you to know that when I did this the first time and we started our training, I got texts, emails, and crying teachers in the hallway saying they weren't good parents. <laughs> and I understand that. Yeah. And so I sent out an email to the entire grade school and said, hey, this isn't saying you've been doing things wrong. This is saying we have learned more information mm-hmm. and we are going to change our mindset to do it differently and to make you aware. It doesn't mean that you've been wrong. These are people who are good parents, right? Yeah. yeah. But a lot of young parents. Yeah. And so I started my trainings this year with that explanation. That was the very first thing I did because yeah. I didn't want people to sit there and feel yeah. smaller and smaller. So the first thing I did with these teachers was basically let them know that they were good parents and that this had this was not a reflection on them yeah. and that hopefully this will just give them some good ideas. Well, and once you, I, I think this will be the third time we've quoted Maya Angelou with the, mm-hmm. when you know better, you do better. Yes. And so it's not an opportunity, like learning something new and reflecting on what you've been doing up until this point like reflect. Yes. Great. Okay. You've learned something new and let's step forward into that, that new, um, idea that, that new problem solving technique, Mm -hmm. um, or better way, you know, healthier way of doing things, but spending a ton of time lamenting about the past when you had no idea. Yeah. I mean, like there's no, there's no point. You didn't know you're human. Like you didn't know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So anyway. Yeah. So that, that's what I started with. And I thought, well, the best way to really instill this in them is I will give them an example of what I could have done better knowing what I know now. Right. It's about me. About us. (laughs) About all of you. Just, just a simple example where I know every parent sitting there has experienced something like this. So I use the car example. I'm like every parent, every mother has been driving along with one, two or three kids in the car or more and heard (laughs) These things yeah. coming from the back seat. I said, for example, we're going to say my three kids are five, seven, and ten. All right, and the middle one, the girl, I could easily have heard Josh is touching me, or uh, say it the way I would have said it. Josh is going to touch me. <laughs> <laughs> there, that was a favorite, right? However, because he'd go like this. Yeah, he. He'd hold it right in front of you. And it was right usually there. his foot coming from the back seat, and he'd put it <laughs> on my armrest because I happened yes. to take my arm off of it for half a second, and he knew that I wouldn't touch his foot in order to get him off the armrest. Mm-hmm. So he knew how to get a reaction. Yeah. So that's what I might hear. And then I might also hear Nathan doesn't have his seatbelt on because in my car, 
You damn well better have your seatbelt on, right? Also, I was concerned for his safety. Yes. Now, I am not saying you did anything wrong. Because I didn't. No, you did not. So here's what I would have done back then. I know I would have. I would have said. Because I start with, yeah, start with what you did do. Yes. What I, what I did do often, I'm sure, because I remember many of these circumstances, is say, Josh, do you need to sit on your hands, basically? Mm-hmm. And then I would have said, Nathan, <clears throat> you need to get your seatbelt on right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pull over and help you get it on if I don't hear that click. Yeah. And you're not going to like it. Ah, right? Flashbacks, flashbacks, right. flashbacks. Exactly. <laughs> and then I might have even said to you, you need to stop tattling. Yep. I might have. Not always. I would heavily disagree with that. <laughs> because I there was a lot always of got in trouble voicing for... our opinion, right? Yeah. Because that's what you did. You had that anxiety about things, and you told me you were. Well, it wasn't anxiety. It was I like they were purposefully torturing me. Yes. But I got in trouble for telling my trusted adult like I'm being tortured. So here's what I would do differently now. I would say I would completely ignore Joshua, and I would say to you, the victim, "How do you feel about that? Did you like that? What do you think about that?" Right. And you would say, no, I don't like that or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, then say, Josh, I don't like it when you pretend to touch me. Next time, keep your hands to yourself, assuming it's a hand, whatever it is. It's always his foot. And then I would have had you practice it. And at first it would have been, Josh, keep your hand to your, you know, and then eventually you would have said it. I would have repeated it. And you would have said it in the correct way. And all of my focus was on you and teaching you how to say it to him in a conflict resolution kind of way. Can I add a piece real quick? Absolutely. I'm not done yet, but go ahead. Oh, I know. But so for for me, for what I teach, and it's different because I work directly with parents, you know, in those situations Mm -hmm. and you work with... a school system so that there's going to be some differences. The thing that I would have done first is identified and validated how I was feeling, whether I'd said it or not, I was complaining about him. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm clearly frustrated. Mm -hmm. um, And I need someone, I need someone to reflect that back to me and validate it for me so that I know you are a safe place. And now I can open my ears and listen to you versus now I'm going to get in trouble because I opened my mouth so from the front seat, it would it would have been for me. It would have been, um, oh, that sounds really frustrating. You don't like it when Josh puts his foot up on your armrest, do mm-hmm. you? And I would have been like, no, I don't like it. Or, or like you said, you could have asked, how does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. But first, saying like as the adult, you knew how I was feeling. You you could stop and pause and mm-hmm. go, that sounds like she's frustrated. I knew, and I could have gone that route. I especially would would go that route now. If you were further into it, and, and why not? Even, why not? Well, I mean, if I felt like you really, you really needed to see that yourself, I may not have felt that you were that far into it at that point. And of course, this is also something that may have happened ten times in one car ride. So, yeah. you know, it might not have been. I'm not talking about a super emotional experience. Well, so. 
so it doesn't need to be. Right. Um, and it and and this is how I teach parents to respond to their children is um if they are not coming to you with a feeling. So here's the comparison that I make. Um when you are married mm-hmm. or partnered or um, you know, committed in a committed relationship, whatever that looks like, uh the 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 way that you are counseled to bring an issue to your partner is you bring your emotion. You don't bring an accusation. You don't bring a yes. a a um you did this. I'm feeling this. But you come to your partner and say I'm feeling really frustrated right now. I'm feeling really sad right now because this thing happened. Mm-hmm. Um and so when we're talking about conflict resolution like that bringing up an issue to your partner and prefacing it with an emotion immediately gives your partner context to they have a need, an emotional need that needs to be met, mm-hmm. not I'm being attacked and I'm right. going to stand up for myself. Right. And where, where that, the reason that, that partnered people don't know how to do that is because they never learned how to do it when they were a kid because nobody ever did it for them. Mm-hmm. And so the way that kids learn how to approach conflict in a healthy way is from our parents. And so anytime there's a conflict between the children, the parent has to model the emotion first. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a huge crying, screaming fight mm-hmm. or the tenth time I'm telling you that he's put his foot on my armrest. Right. And so no matter how tiny it might seem, if we respond first by mirroring the child's emotion, it immediately disarms them and allows their brain to feel safe enough to hear your conflict resolution mm-hmm. teaching. So so That's you can just, you can recognize it or you can ask them to recognize it but you need to recognize the feeling. Yes. And then you can give them the skill. You can give them the skill and de- or depending on age and how many times you've already taught the skill. If it's the first time, you could ask once, what do you think you what how do you think you could talk to your brother to make that stop? Mm-hmm. You know, and if I'm 7 or I don't remember what the ages you said, but Seven. seven, eight, nine. I am very much old enough to to come up with a solution myself. Mm-hmm. But if I'm very adamant that I don't know, like, and you haven't really taught it to me yet, you know, maybe this is a new concept for you at, at me at age seven. Mm-hmm. Then give me the answer, right? Well, if I'd have been doing this with you when you were two, you would have right. known it by three, right? Your language would change as you right. went along, and that's the thing I think parents also and teachers need to to do this with a kid each year. Yeah. And, and, you know, we teach them, we teach them how to read over and over and over and over again at different levels. You have to teach them the language to use at different levels. And so I would have done that with you. Yeah. That way, the guy in the back seat, first of all, he no longer gets the reaction from you. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm completely ignoring him. Well, and that's without you being like, stop tattling. That's what, like, exactly. I don't get shamed no, no, no. for doing You're, what's natural. You are, you are completely off the hook, but he's also not getting the little thing he was going for, which is dangling the bait in front of his sister and right. getting a reaction. But that's what I'm saying is that the, the behavior disappears without you ever acknowledging the behavior. Yes. So you, you emotionally, you say, that sounds frustrating. What do you think you could say to your brother to get him to stop doing that to you? Mm-hmm. And that also empowers me to stand up for myself 
And when I'm yes. seven, maybe I have a parent doing that for me. But when I'm 25, there's nobody around to do that for me. Oh, sweetie, you just took my example. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I'm not sorry. No. <laughs> and I'll come back to you. And then I would have, so I would have empowered you and given you the words. Mm-hmm. And then I would have said to your little brother, it is my job to keep you safe. Yeah. If you have your seatbelt on, you are safe in the car. Mm-hmm. Right now, you are not safe in this car. Yeah. Would you like to put your seatbelt on or would you like me to pull over and help you? Yes. Simply. So it's not a threat. And not, you don't you need have, the threat. You have two choices. Yep. You have to have your seatbelt on. Yep. The expectation remains. Yep. You can yep. do it yourself or I can help you. Yep. Um, and what I ended with that day with you was I said, I have a very strong, capable daughter. But if I had instilled that skill in her early on, we might have seen her standing up for herself without having to be as adamant, mm-hmm. the only girl among the boys. Pushing back. Pushing against back. Against everything. But also I said, don't you want, you know, if, if the example is, I don't like it, when you touch me, next time keep your hands to yourself. Don't we all want to send our daughters off to college knowing how to tell a boy? Yeah. I don't like it. And then if when they tattle, they're not going to get in trouble. Yeah. yeah. So it's a simple thing, but that skill of, and what I did was what It parents, seems like a simple thing. But, but it's not. Yeah. And what I did was I took control for all of you. Yep. I, I was used to running around and making sure everybody yep. was okay and everybody was safe. Yep. And you do this, you do this, you do this. And that's the load that a lot of parents carry. Yes. Yeah. And I'm not saying that we didn't have a lot of emotional connection and, and a lot yeah. of cuddling and all those things and, and recognizing feelings. But a lot of times it had to hit a different level. Conflict resolution is where, is where like there was love and connection and like understanding and we talked about our feelings, but when it came to conflict resolution, Mm -hmm. it was like, what can I do in this moment to make this stop now? Mm -hmm. Instead of here's a teaching moment. One of me and three of you. (laughs) Well, and that's like, that is the, like the parental mindset of, I don't want my kids to be fighting. I need this mm-hmm. to stop right now. I'm driving. I don't want to get distracted. I've got mm-hmm. one kid without a seatbelt on, and you've got 40 things going on. Right. And there's this urgency. Yes. And so teaching parents how to call, like how to self-regulate that urgency. Yes. Right? Yes. How to be safe in their own bodies and know that nothing disastrous is going to happen well, right now. Well, teaching them the skills of what to do. Yeah. So that and they then have it giving ready them to go. the skill. Well, but for, they can't do that from from an urgent place. You've got no. to do it from a calm place. They have to be in their intellectual executive brain yeah. to do it. And so when you're hanging out right here where you are not reacting primitively, mm-hmm. but you're also not reacting executively. Yeah. You have to breathe to calm yourself to get yourself you're an back autopilot. up there. Mm-hmm. You got to get out of autopilot, yeah. autopilot and we've got to take a breath look, assess a situation and go, okay, I'm going to address this first and then I'm going to address that. And then we're going to address this and we're not going to threaten. We're not going to shame. We're not going to make anyone wrong Mm -hmm. in this situation because every one of them has their feelings Mm -hmm. and we just need to take care of each person. And if I had advice for parents (laughs) today, it would be give your kids time to lay on their backs and look at the stars mm. and have a conversation. Yeah. 
because they don't get time to think and feel and just experience who they are. And I was guilty of letting you be in everything you all wanted to be in and taking you there and running everyone around. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't think it's bad to be involved. I think it's Mm -hmm. really good. But we're busy, busy, busy. They're busy. So parents are stressed. Kids are stressed. And they need time to just be little well, humans. And we also, I think one of my biggest regrets from my childhood is we did not have family dinners. Oh, mine too. We never, we never sat down and ate a meal unless it was Christmas or Thanksgiving. We were occasionally on a Saturday, but we were running. Yeah. We were running everywhere. And we tried really hard. I tried to keep Sunday. I remember time for that. Yeah. Um, but that didn't and then work things out started to <laughs> started to leak into Sunday. Yeah. You know, I mean we at least had to go to Sunday school, go to church, come home and have lunch, and then we collapsed. <laughs> right. Or we had plans with friends or like there yeah. and when we got older there was tournament you know, tournaments and this and that, you know, I so know. many things. But yeah, that that involved but not overscheduled. Yes. Let their let them be bored is what I tell parents. Yes. Let them be bored. I want to tell you this and then we really do have to wrap up. But um I you know, I remember growing up, we grew up out in the country, you know, we didn't live in town and I remember giving we all gave you such a hard time for that. Um because we all we wanted was to be close enough to our friends to be able to run out the back door, jump on our bikes and go, you know, cuz I would hear stories of all my friends getting together cuz they didn't yeah. need their parents to drive them there or whatever. And I was just always like, you know, grass is always greener. Right. Right? And in the meantime, having no appreciation for the wide open spaces that I had. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the, whether it was the summers, um, but it was the warmer months and you, um, it was a summer, I think I was like 10, 11 ish. I, you had, we had the collie pups. Yeah. And, uh, Nathan and I had gone out. We lived on three acres. Um, it wasn't all our land. Some of it belonged to the neighbor, but we lived on a big open Mm -hmm. field, um, with big trees and we'd climb trees and like, it was beautiful. And I, we went out back and Nathan and I went and we got the puppies and we brought them to the backyard with these two giant trees that gave like provided so much shade in the backyard and we laid down in the cool grass and the puppies just ran all over like ran all over us and I have this vision of like looking up under the tree and seeing the speckles of the sky probably can't hear me when I'm back there talking like that (laughs) I had this vision of looking up um from under the tree and seeing the speckles of sky and sunlight through the leaves. Mm-hmm. And I was laying on cold grass and these puppies were these tiny little, like six week old puppies just like running all over us. And me and Nathan are just laying there giggling and they're nibbling our, and that is like, it, it is a visceral memory for me. And it's one that I, um, I led a women's circle a couple of weeks ago and I had everyone, um, we did a reparenting experience meditation and reparenting the self. And, um, I had everyone go into a meditation and pick a place from their, uh, pick a scene from their childhood. Mm -hmm. That was their safe place. Oh, not going to (laughs) cry. 
And when I was putting together that meditation, that is the image and to this day and prior to that, that is the image that when I picture my childhood, that is the image I picture. And so like the, you know, and Lewis and Lewis and I, we've moved out of the city and we're still in, you know, a little bit of suburbia, but we're, we've got a little bit of land and we've got, you know, got a field, breathing room. we've got some breathing room and we are, we're moving more and more towards that open spaces. And point is I appreciate pieces of my childhood that I like I had no idea how much it mattered that 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 time to just be a kid mm-hmm. that time to just lay in the grass with puppies yeah to just lay outside and feel nature and be a kid and you know there was there was no car there were no cars honking there were no neighbors making noise it was just me and the wind and the grass and the dogs and the trees and my little brother and giggles, mm-hmm. you know, and there are a lot of kids who, who could trace, could, could, you know, remember their entire childhood and never have a moment like that where they were, where it was just quiet mm-hmm. and nature and, you know, joy. You see, it was, it was really important for me to give you that because those pieces in my childhood yeah, were when I had puppies. Yeah which was one time you had a horse and when I was riding on the back of a horse Ugh. look, which was for two years yeah. and then it was over, you know, it's hard to give up something you've had that was perfect. Mm-hmm. But those, when I was on the back of a horse, that is when I thought through things that I don't think kids often get a chance to think through. Yeah. You know, and in between the thinking, there was now I'm going to gallop, you know, and so I wanted you, I wanted you guys to have that opportunity. And I appreciate very much that you told me about that because I didn't know that. Yeah. I I hoped that you would remember those things. Yeah. I don't know. Um, is there any, are there any last pieces that we didn't cover that you feel you want to share? I think if I was, if I was going to say anything more about the school Mm -hmm. issue, it would be that when I think back to behavior plans I created before Mm. trauma, the things that, and, and as I thought through examples to tell my teachers about Mm -hmm. of kids who were extreme. Yeah kids who would organize a stoning of other kids, Jesus, kids who were extreme, the things that helped those kids, the two things that I might've done right, (laughs) not understanding what was going on with them and the trauma they'd experienced were getting in a true relationship with their teacher. Yeah. And also having a job in school, a purpose where they felt the purpose, but also not only does a job build self-esteem, it keeps you in your executive brain. Yeah. Keeps you focused. And so having a reason to stay in their executive brain and having a relationship of trust and safety 
were the two things that yeah. got those kids through that I learned to write into sometimes it happened by accident. Yeah. Um, that would take too long to, to explain, but those were the things. And so I have kept that knowledge and added all of this other stuff to it. And those are the plans that we write now that I write now. And I feel like finally there are some differences being made that might be permanent for those kids. I have hope. Yeah. Cause you, we were talking a little bit before this, um, saying that you write behavior plans now based on the need behind the behavior mm-hmm. versus we just need the behavior to stop. Yes. Instead we, of we need to identify what that child's needs are and mm-hmm. meet those needs. And then the behavior stops. And, you know, and I don't blame them. People look at me when I say, well, if this child needs, if they crave attention mm-hmm. from an adult, that's what we should give them. Yeah. We should give it to them all the time when we can give it to them positively. Mm-hmm. When they're regulated. Yeah. yeah. We, we should give them that attention. As, and, you know, again, we, we struggle with that in schools just because of personnel issues. Yeah. But you're going to give it to them anyway. Yeah. How about we do it positively? And then you're going <clears> to <throat> see the negative behaviors go down. And, you know, and you build in a lot of other structures with it. Yeah. But that once you know, for me, it's targeting that that need, the function of their behavior. And you also know that there's going to be that dysregulation piece. Yeah. There, too. And that can be very strong or that can be very mild, depending on the child. But you've got to be able to to address that and address the function of their behavior and give them what they need. If I don't eat lunch, I get hungry. Yep. So let me eat lunch. Yep. <laughs> you know? That's a good one. So that would be my advice. Figure out let what they really lunch. need. Let that be the battle cry of the parental, <laughs> the parental and education revolution. Yes. Yes. All those environmental things are really very important to children. Yeah. So food and drink and sleep. Awesome. A lot of love. Well, thanks I for doing you. a podcast. I love you. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you for being here. I hope that you picked up plenty of wonderful nuggets from my mama. And um, we will see you next week for episode four of the education series. Uh, and as always, if you have any questions, uh, please go to the YouTube channel and leave a comment there. We can always answer your questions on the podcast, um, doing on different podcast episodes. So, all right. Bye everybody. If someone came to mind while you were listening to this episode, or you are wishing you had a friend to digest it with. I would be so honored if you shared this link from this episode with them. I myself have always benefited from community and sharing, and I truly believe that it takes a village to raise a child. Our society has become so independent from one another, and parenting these days is often a lonely journey. 
but it doesn't have to be that way. That's why I'm here. If you have been seeking a more intentional approach to parenting, but you aren't sure where to start, I would love to hear from you. You can find me and all of my offerings at www.jennyb.co and come follow me on all major social media platforms. It fills my heart to hear your stories, where you come from, and your big goals for raising the next generation. And don't forget, comment your parenting question on our YouTube channel, The Relational Parenting Podcast, to get it answered on one of our future episodes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss out. I am so grateful that you are here. And always remember, you are never alone. I'll see you next week. This show is intended for education and entertainment purposes only. We will discuss things like mental health, abuse, PTSD, and other potentially triggering subjects. Please listen at your own discretion, and this podcast is not intended for anyone under the age of 18.